Well, if you haven't got them already open, do open your Bibles with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It was read to us earlier. Let me just remind you of one of the the various strands of thought that are going through this this chapter in verse 4. The teacher says, I saw that all labour, all achievement, spring from man's envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. Let's pray. We want to ask you, Lord, that you will help us to understand your ancient word. We have seen, as we've studied uh, this book over the last few weeks, how contemporary it is. And we ask that you would show us the abiding truth, the contemporary relevance for us today in this chapter. We ask it, Lord, so that you will enlighten our minds. But we ask it as well, so that you will change our lives. So that we can find the, the contentment, the satisfaction, the meaning that this man so clearly searches for. Please then, Lord, we all need these things. Come to each one of us. Work in each one of our lives. And change us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's all pretty routine, really. At least I thought so. A major international company starts to suffer losses. And of course, in order to maintain the share price, it decides to hide those losses. Finally, the scale of the disaster is impossible to hide, and the company collapses. And of course, equally predictably, a few insiders who knew what was going on sold their shares before the bad news got out and walked away with millions, whilst ordinary employees with shares in the company lost everything, their jobs, their savings. And it'll take years to unravel the details. You can guarantee, though, one thing. Most of the guilty people will walk away rich and free, whilst the little people will not get a penny. Of course, I'm describing Enron. I wouldn't want to publicly uh, comment on the integrity of that company, but let's just say if you find a seven-pound note, you can be sure that uh, it came from Enron and it was certified as legal tender by their auditors. And I have to say that um, I could have been describing any one of a number of uh, different cases, couldn't I? Robert Maxwell, the Guinness scandal, BCCI, and so on. The list is endless. Sometimes the perpetrators do get a measure of justice, but not very often, frankly. And one thing you can be sure of, the ordinary people lose. And there is nothing new in that. Nothing at all. Over 2,000 years ago, when this book, uh, Ecclesiastes, was written, the teacher saw exactly the same thing. Again, he says, I looked and I saw... Chapter 4, verse 1. 
all the oppression that was taking place under the sun, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Now, to, to get this into context, we, we need for a moment to remember where the teacher who wrote this has come from in his meditations. First of all, um, we, we should remember that um, as he began his uh, meditations in, in chapter 1, verse 12, to uh, 2, verse 11, we saw him pursuing that, that very modern, contemporary quest. The quest for instant pleasure. We saw too that his conclusion was very dark. Yes, pleasure is good, he said, but it doesn't really satisfy us. So actually, chasing after it becomes hard, fruitless, toil, labour, work. Ecclesiastes 2.11 Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun, he said. So, he says, perhaps where I've gone wrong is I wasn't wise enough. Perhaps I need to actually think more carefully, understand this world better. So he does that, and he realises that wisdom, understanding, is good, but equally futile. Futile in this case, because actually death makes all our striving after wisdom completely useless because uh, we die exactly the same death, whether we are wise or foolish. So his conclusion at uh, the end of chapter 2 was, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind doesn't rest. When you're searching for wisdom, your mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. So then in chapter 3, things started to get a little bit brighter. He noticed that life has certain natural rhythms. And he saw that they are good. He said God has made everything beautiful in its time. But then as he meditated on those natural rhythms, he saw again that actually death, cuts off the most important natural rhythm that we search for in this world. The rhythm that uh, matches injustice with judgment. It doesn't always happen, he says. Sometimes actually uh, the unjust die before judgment catches up with them. Many times the just die before they reap their rewards. So his final conclusion at the end of chapter 3 was a conclusion really of dull resignation. Verse 22, So I saw there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that's his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after? But uh, for all that he's sort of partially come to rest and just said, oh well, I'll just enjoy my work then. 
His spirit is not really at rest. This issue of injustice, which he's talked about in chapter 3, bugs him. It's got under his skin. It actually, it actually uh, really worries him as it worries anyone who is really thinking about this world. That's why in chapter 4 he moves on and says, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking, uh, taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the, the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter. There's that repeated little phrase which is so poignant there. They have no comforter. They have no comforter. This world, he says, is actually a terrible place for all the good things that there may be in it. And as he meditates on that, he comes to a terrible conclusion. Verse 2, I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Perhaps that was the terrible conclusion of Clifford Baxter, the Enron executive who committed suicide this week. The tragedy of his life was made all the worse by the knowledge that he seems to have had a conscience about his involvement in the scandal. It's recorded that he protested many times about uh, what was going on in Enron. One of the whistleblowers described him as a man of the utmost integrity. Perhaps he just couldn't live with the way that he had been corrupted by what was going on around him, by what he'd got involved in. The teacher actually concludes here that at the only time, actually, when we've not been corrupted by the oppression in this world is when we were just a twinkle in our parents' eye. Do you see that? Better than both of these is he, verse 3, who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil <coughs> that is under the sun. Notice actually his problem is not just that, that it, 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 is, is not that he himself is chief amongst the oppressors or that he's chief amongst the oppressed. No, he says the terrible thing is that we see these things and our hearts are corrupted. One of the hard things about seeing children grow up is seeing them lose their innocence. Even young adults have a, have a moral clarity about them so often that, that and as we get older, we older people so easily lose because we just get jaded by this world. We've just seen too much. Frankly, as I said at the beginning, I wasn't shocked by Enron. Perhaps I should have been. I find increasingly that I'm not shocked by the terrible things that I see in the news. I was shocked when Bob Geldof went off and came back uh, determined to, uh, uh, to do something for the third world, for people dying there. Because I was young then, like him. But over the years, says the teacher, we develop a callousness in our hearts. And he says, we get dehumanized. Better the child who has not yet seen these things than to have seen them. 
But then as the teacher meditates on, um, on, on these realities about the world, he suddenly realizes something very, very important. It's the insight that holds this whole chapter together. He realizes that it's not just that uh, he is corrupted by seeing all this evil. He realizes that his attitude to work, his toiling, his attitude towards what he does with his life, actually makes him part of that. That's why, you see, he jumps apparently incongruously, I'm sure, from uh, talking about these oppressed people to starting to talk about um, uh, labor and achievement in verse 4. We've already seen in the first three chapters, he's concluded again that labor and toil are meaningless. But now he sees that actually the attitude in his heart which drives him to labor and toil makes him in some sense bound up with the very oppression that he sees and hates. That's what I want to show you this morning, what I want us to meditate on, because it's very, very important. To put it in, in up-to-the-minute terms, what he's saying is we are part of the Enron scandal. Let me show you why he tells us that. He says, my problem, first of all, is that I am driven in my work by a false motivation. Verse 4. I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is, a me is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Actually, that little verse could be a summary of the, 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 the economics of the last 200 years. In the 18th century, the father of modern economics, a man called Adam Smith, said that the world would be much more wealthy if we only just harness this natural individual drive that people have to want to be richer than the next man. The modern capitalist system, the, the modern free trade between countries was, was, was built on Adam Smith's ideas. Adam Smith believed that there was a, a natural hidden hand, as he put it in history, which would stop the rich from becoming too rich or the poor from becoming poor, too poor. And if only we just let everybody make as much money as their desires told them to, everybody will be all right. But Adam Smith's hidden hand didn't work. In the 19th century, um, Karl Marx actually described the dreadful inequalities between rich and poor that had been caused by Adam Smith's economics. But Karl Marx's solution, you see, was just to harness envy again, this time the envy of the poor people. He advocated the overthrow of the rich and powerful by the poor. And because never did he really deal with this disease in our hearts, there was no real change when the Russian Revolution happened. Just one group of oppressors was replaced by another. Because as the teacher says, we are driven 
by this desire for more, this envy of our neighbour. And it's actually tightly bound up with oppression. I wonder today whether we are any different. I mean, it may be that as, as a nation we have escaped the worst effects of that envy, but the, the, the rising gap of, between rich and poor in our country is worrying. And I have to say, our success as a nation has been partly built on the poverty of the third world. You know, the protesters that are gathering outside the World Economic Forum at this very moment have a lot of facts on their side. In 1999, for instance, the president of the World Bank, Bank uh, James Wolfenson, said of the global economy, at the level of people, the system isn't working. There's a growing fury at the way that international companies make a fortune from the national resources of poor nations, which barely get a penny in return. There is real suspicion at the, at the, the widespread uh, work of companies that, that are involved in, um, uh, in certain GM crops. Uh, for third world countries. Those crops may be more successful, but people say it will leave the poor farmers having to go back every year to buy more seed rather than just save some of their own for the next year. Are we really to believe that there won't be a net flow of cash into the rich world? Naomi Klein in her book, uh, No Logo, has shown actually how that, the envy and the rivalry of teenagers in the uh, Western world gets drawn into a much wider, wider web of injustice because these teenagers love designer clothes. Sadly, these, so many of these clothes and shoes with their logos on them are made in uh, sweatshops with appalling pay and conditions in the Far East. And so this desire that young people are encouraged to have to be a little bit smarter and a little bit better and a little bit more prestigious than the next person actually feeds a terrible injustice. But let's not just blame uh, teenagers and their manipulators. Aren't you and I driven in that way? Aren't we driven... In, the, in all our labour and work, partly by the desire to be better than the next person, to have a better reputation, a better qualification, a better salary. I saw that all labour, he says, and achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbour. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. They have no comforter. Oh, it's powerful stuff, isn't it? What are we to do as we respond to this observation that he makes? Well, we can't give up work altogether, he says. That's the way of the fool, verse 5. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. But, he says, we can cultivate contentment, verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Let's be clear about it, he says. We will end up being poorer. We will only have one handful, not two. 
We may have a lesser reputation because we haven't risen so meteorically to the top of our career. We may have less power. We may have less influence. We may have less money. But, he says, if we can find tranquility, it's worth it. That word's actually used for, for birds coming to rest. He says, effectively, from flapping madly to stay in the air. Let's just settle down and rest like a bird on its perch. seems to me that we Christians need to live lives that self-consciously step aside from that, that desperate rush for more, which is at root motivated by envy. Of course, we need our handful. We need to do some work. Because of our different callings, we may well have different amounts of uh, money and prestige even. But God calls us to be content, not to desperately be seeking for more. God calls us to tranquility. It's only in that lifestyle can we step aside from this uh, desperate rush of the world. That leads to so much oppression and problems. Perhaps as well, we should be especially aware of certain issues. For instance, there's lots of information out there now about what clothes and other items are produced ethically and which, which items, in fact, oppress people in other nations. There's a growing... Um, a trend for um, fashion parades, ethical fashion parades for teenagers. It's a great idea to encourage them to make good choices when they buy their clothes. We've got fair trade organisations in this country, some specifically Christian fair trade organisations. Shouldn't we patronise them? Shouldn't we find ways to make sure that our life is not even inadvertently a life that is uh, struggling up the greasy pole and stamping on the heads of those below us. A teacher says, I'm part of this world's problem because I am actually driven by false motivation. Motivation of envy. But then he continues in thinking about his bad attitudes to work as well. He says as well in, uh, in his uh, attitude to work, his other problem is that he's driven by false hopes as well. Verse 8, he tells us a little story. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Back in chapter 2, we saw how <coughs> he had realized in his search for wisdom that his achievements might be squandered by the next generation. Well, now the teacher here describes a man who's actually totally alone. Men like this are a growing breed in our country. There's a dramatic increase in uh, middle-aged men, especially, who are living alone, often after, after divorce. And they work very hard. Very often it's actually their obsession about working hard 
that has led to their loneliness. And then for so many of those men especially, comes a midlife crisis. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? A distressingly large a proportion of people live lives with the illusion that, that they're toiling for some, uh, some great future day when they can enjoy their wealth with uh, their nearest and dearest. And then suddenly, in that moment of truth, they turn around and realise they're totally alone and their wealth will soon be gone. What's the solution? The solution, he says, is that real satisfaction will only be found if we don't make work our God, but we cultivate as well satisfaction of healthy relationships. Look at verse 9, for, uh, for instance. Two are better than one, he says. And then he goes on to explain why two are better than one. They're better than one because the work that we do won't be quite so onerous. Second half of verse 9, because they have a good return for their work. He says uh, two are better than one because there will be someone to help us when things go wrong. Verse 10, if one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. And then he says two are better than one because there will be the physical comfort of another person. Verse 11, also if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And companions, he says, will make us strong against opposition. Verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Part of this is, of course, a, 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 certainly a meditation of marriage, on marriage. Marriage is a precious part of that, that companionship, those relationships. That's why marriage is such a, a precious institution in our, our nation. That's why the breakdown of marriage is a much deeper tragedy than most people think. Many of us here are married. We need to think about that. Are we cultivating our marriage? Are we nurturing our relationship? Or are we so busy working that actually the marriage is dying? Even Christians these days, because they get caught up in this mindset, turn around sometimes and find they do not have a marriage. Maybe if you're married, you need to discuss that with your spouse over lunch. But marriage is only one context where, where, where our, our labour can, uh, can be meaningful and healthy. Surely this is a description of the workplace as well, isn't it? If everyone is striving on their own, there is no teamwork. And then our labours will be, will be lonely and unsatisfying. But if we work together, then the work is more productive. We can pick one another up. We can comfort one another. We can work against opposition. Remember an episode of Ali McBeal in which the senior partner 
uh, looked out over the, all the infighting in the, the firm that he'd founded and he says, it wasn't supposed to be like this. We set this firm up to have fun together. And the teacher would say, bravo, you're right. Toiling alone is a miserable business. The workplace needs to be a place of companionship. Must be a description of a healthy church too, mustn't it? Working together, picking one another up, comforting one another, linking arms against the opposition. Two are better than one, he says. Actually, uh, the last phrase that we've uh, missed so far is, is, is enigmatic and tantalizing. A cord of three strands, he says in verse 12, is not quickly broken. Perhaps it, he just wants to uh, broaden it uh, from the potentially introverted uh, picture of, of, of just one-to-one -one relationships. Perhaps he's saying that the relationships are broader than that. But maybe he is wistfully thinking out about something that he confesses eludes him throughout this book. See, the teacher always says repeatedly that he can't see God. He lives life under the sun. He lives in a world in which God is mysterious. I wonder whether at the end of this chapter he is just imagining how wonderful it would be if in every one-to-one -one relationship there was a third person too. God himself. That wouldn't break. And would it? One of the great things that's, that's happening in our society at the moment is a is a recovery amongst younger people especially of the value of relationships, of, uh, of attitudes to life that this, this teacher would applaud. Listen to some of the lyrics, for instance, of uh, uh, the theme song from uh, the, the television series Friends. Could have been written by this teacher. No one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke, you're broke, your life's DOA. I'll be there for you like I've been there before. I'll be there for you because you're there for me too. God made us to have friends. That's why he created the church. That's why uh, we, here we encourage small pastoral groups so that true, close friendships can be cultivated. Do you belong to one? In fact, uh, people who watch the trends in society tell us uh, that uh, the witness of churches in, the, uh, in the, uh, our culture over the next generation will live or die not least by the quality of relationships in those churches because people want relationships today. People have discovered what this teacher has discovered. The terrible loneliness of being driven by work, working alone. People have discovered how precious it is to have someone else. Could it be that's why, that that's why the New Testament actually says that a divisive person in the church is as dangerous to the church as a heretic? Because actually, 
if relationships are broken in a church and people will turn away from Christ and be lost. Well, there we are. That's what he has discovered. He has made some very, very important observations as to how our attitude to our life, especially to our work, actually, actually if it is wrong, uh, implicates us in this wider problem of oppression that he sees. If we ourselves are motivated by envy, how can we stand aside from a world too that is motivated by envy? How can we say, I am not guilty? If we are actually uh, motivated by this false illusion that just devoting ourselves to work all the time will somehow reap us benefits in the future, and damaging our relationships in the process, how can we then say that we are uh, separate from a world that is damaging itself so terribly with bad relationships? No, says the teacher, we ourselves need to discover contentment. We ourselves need to discover the value of relationships. And has he solved the world's problems? Sadly, I don't think so. Sadly, uh, I, I fear that this uh, cry that he has in the first three verses, though we have, may have distanced ourselves from it somewhat, is a cry that will go on throughout history. Because though he sees the problem, he nowhere can see fully how the world can be rid of that problem. And no one since him has done either, except Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came and said very, very clearly, the only way this world will finally be rid of the oppression that there is, is when he comes again to judge everyone, the living and the dead. John saw that uh, great event. He heard an angel say this, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That repeated refrain that he said at the beginning will then and only then be history. No one will say, and they have no comforter. Because all those who love the living God will be comforted by him personally. In the end, it's up to us whether we stand aside from this mad world and face judgment, or whether we start to live lives that are different now and look forward with longing 
for the day when the dwelling of God will be with men.